Hi everyone, welcome back to Metropolis. It is December 13th, 2023. On today's episode, we have Ted Rudland, a professor from Concordia University. His research and activism focuses on the racial politics of urban planning and policing in Canadian cities. Stay tuned after, uh, after our segment with Ted for Hello Goodbye Lines. We have Savannah and Ode, and they will be talking about the unmarked burials at McGill, as well as Indigenous-led community organizations and how they are in need of more funding. How are you doing, Ted? I'm doing all right. How are you? Excellent. I'm doing excellent today. Thank you for coming on. So today I have asked you to come on so graciously to talk about Montreal's budget. Mm -hmm. So just last month, the municipal government put out their 2024 budget, and the biggest chunk of it is going to public security. Mm -hmm. What do you know about public security, Ted? Well, it's a question of what anyone in the city knows about public security. Yeah, so the, they um, passed the budget on Monday um, and included a $35 million budget increase for the, for the police. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to anyone who thinks about it for five seconds, you realize that public safety has to do with many more things than just the police. I mean, say what keeps you safe? Mm -hmm. You can name a bunch of things. The police are probably rarely involved in keeping you safe. Um, and even when we're talking about, you know, serious crime, violence, um, the police, you know, are, are kind of the least bad solution, if they're a solution at all to these things. There's a whole bunch of things we should be doing to promote public safety, um, but we live in a city where public safety equals the police. Um, and so if we want, if the city government wants to address fears of crime or violence, we just throw more money at the police. And I believe this is a trend. If we go, if we go to our first slide we have, this is an uh, article you put out uh, last year, I believe, in Cult Montreal. This is uh, we're for our uh, audio listeners. This is an article put out December 8th, 2022. The title is, The City of Montreal is Overfunding the Police and the SPM, SPVM Budget Still Goes... The SPVM Still Goes Over Budget, excuse me, by Ted Rutland. Last week's city budget proposal includes a historic $63 million increase in spending on the SPVM, which has the highest number of officers per capita in Canada and overspent last year's budget by $50 million. Let's go to the next slide immediately. So from this article, we have uh, this uh, bit of a, uh, a summary of a report put out in 2019 commissioned by the city that found that the service de police de la ville de Montréal, the SPVM, are four to five times more likely to stop a racialized person than a white person. Uh, one more time. Next slide, please. Uh, we have another uh, set of quotes from that article. If we look at the 10 largest urban police forces in Canada, the Service de Police de la Ville de Montréal, uh, SPVM, distinguishes, distinguishes itself in several respects. It is the police force, for example, with the largest number of police officers per capita, as we said before. According to my research, your research did. <laughs> Between 2017 and 2021, the SPVM overspent its budget by an average of 30 million each year. Have things changed since last year? No, uh, no. We continue to throw money at the police, and the poli police continue to spend that money uh, and then spend whatever they feel like spending. And so they went over budget by 42 million dollars this year. So the average overspend is now up to 35 million dollars a year. Not so that's no. just. $35 million every year they spend because they feel like it. Um, I think anyone can sort of imagine that there are some needs in the city that could be met um, with that $35 million, but the police just spend it. What's interesting is that for this, this year, so for 2023, they were given a $63 million increase to hire uh, 142 more cops. Mm -hmm. um, they hired half that number, 
Uh, they spent all the extra money anyway, and then still went over by $42 million a year. So they just go over, they just spend whatever they want. They, they, they decide their own budget. Um, and the city continually rewards them by giving them a bigger um, budget increase every year. Um, the major response from city council this year was to say, are you sure we're giving you enough money for 2024? Like if you keep going, going over budget, maybe we should just give you more. Wow, so they're, they're, they're saying like, oh, we see you're going over budget, so yeah. clearly like this means you're not getting enough, rather yeah. than there being some kind of accountability. And it's the only large police force in Canada that does this. I looked at the largest 10 police forces in Canada. Um, the closest um, uh, comparable to Montreal is the Vancouver Police Department, which goes over budget by $2 million a year. $2 million. Yeah. Meanwhile, well, we were going over budget by... Yeah, like by $35. $35 million. That's... Yeah. And, and, and as you said, you know, the largest number of police officers per capita in Canada, um, 33% more than the average for the 10 largest police forces. And so we just have a ton of police. We throw a ton of money at them. And then they also just allocate money to themselves to spend on whatever they feel like. Well, you, you know what it is that they're spending on? Like what, like it's, what? Mo it's mostly staff. I mean, 90% of their spending is on staff. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's paying for policing. Um, and I think the question... You know that that Montrealers need to ask is, um, are there things that that we see the police doing or that we know the police doing that that we could just have someone else do, mm -hmm. or that we could just not have them do it at all? For example, I mean, they spend a lot of money harassing unhoused people. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could just stop doing that. Maybe even we could cut the police budget, um, you know, by the amount we want to see them stop harassing unhoused people and provide that money to unhoused people in the form of like day shelters or long-term kind of social housing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a, a report that the Quebec uh, Union and Municipalities put out this year, so in Montreal, basically the Montreal city government is the biggest member of that union, and so they very well know what this report says, they commissioned it, shows that it costs $17,000 a year to police an unhoused person. If you think about what it would cost to just get the person a home, Except, like that's over a thousand dollars a month that right. we're spending just to police one unhoused person, mm -hmm. and so it's it's a waste of money. It's brutally violent, um, and you know, sort of totally out of line with the kind of city that I think a lot of Montrealers want to see. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it, to speak to that comment about this kind of uh, city Montrealers want to see. I think in twenty twenty there was a uh, a report uh, a survey that asked Quebecers on what they believed uh, should should be done with like the financing of police and something like 73% of Montrealers believe that the SPVM budget was too high and should be decreased to some extent. Do you think that sentiment is still around? So it's hard to tell because the, the city, you know, Projet Montréal came to power promising participatory budgeting. Mm -hmm. So they want people to be more involved in setting the budget. In 2020, they did this survey in the lead up to the, to the budget and asked people whether they wanted to see the police budget increase, decrease, or stayed the same. And 73% of Montrealers said they wanted it decreased. Um, they obviously didn't do that. They increased the police budget that year anyway. And then the next year, they just didn't ask the question. And they haven't asked, answered it since. They know what the answer would be, I guess. Of course. Of right. course they know what the answer would be. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I th I mean, I think 2020 was, was a special time, right? This is in the middle of um, the second wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. the two largest police uh, protests against police violence and racism in Montreal's history happened that summer. And so, obviously, you know, people's... Um, support for something that would make Black Lives Matter, um, something that would reduce police racism and violence was very high. It was, you know, on, on a lot of people's minds at that time. Uh, you know, I suspect that the percentage would be a little lower mm -hmm. now just because 
you know, people get distracted. Of course. Um, and um, the police and the police brotherhood have done a very, very good job of waging uh, an ideological and media counteroffensive to that movement. And so beginning in the summer of 2020, um, they started hyping gun violence, saying that gun violence was out of control, that it was a real problem. Um, and, you know, when you talk about gun violence in Montreal, the, the subtext is that this is young black people. Right. Two, two months later, they said, well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's attributable to, to the street gangs. And street gangs in Montreal is code for black people. There are gangs in, in all communities. There absolutely, it absolutely isn't a black thing, mm -hmm. but it's a way of being super racist without seeming to say that we're blaming this on a particular racial group. And they spent three years hyping, hyping gun violence and racking in the money uh, in terms of budget increases. Um, and the media um, followed suit. Um, the media started hyping gun violence as well. Um, and so do people, do 73% of Montrealers want a smaller police budget? This year, I suspect not, because, you know, what's been in the media has been this um, tremendous uh, moral panic about gangs and guns. Mm -hmm. And it's been a while since we've seen a historic protest against police racism and violence. It's been three years since we've had a big protest. Mm -hmm. But the problem remains. And you think, why, why do you think there has been such a alone in the protest? you think they've just been on their best behavior, they haven't been doing much, or...? I think that's the way, I think that's how it happens. I think, you know, the police are a form of organized violence. Mm -hmm. They're violence workers. That is their job. Um, and of course, you know, not every police interaction is violent. Right. But, but it is premised on the possibility of violence. The threat of violence. The threat of violence. So right. we can, it can like, escalate to that. Exactly. Right. And everyone knows that. That's why we follow orders, right? Mm -hmm. And that violence could be, they could beat you, they could kill you, or they could arrest you and throw you in a cell, which is also a form of violence. Um, and so they're committing violence or they're, they're acting with violence, the threat of violence every day. They've killed a bunch of people since 2020. Um, but you never know what's going to spark the protests, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, why, why, why George Floyd? You know, the, the U.S. police kill, you know, kill someone every 40 hours, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's just... You never know what's going what's gonna to spark what's gonna be the movement. Point. And we will have another spark. And so in terms of, you know, where the movement against police racism and violence is, in terms of where the movement to defund the police is, um, it's not visible right now. But that organizing is continuing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's a lot of work going on to really formulate what we mean when we say defund the police. Like, what exactly do we mean? Mm -hmm. What are we trying to remove? And what are we trying to reallocate that money to? So I think the next time there is a big protest, I think we'll actually be better positioned um, to make really clear demands of what we want. Um, and the funny thing, I think, is that both the police and our city council probably think that defund the police was just this fad, and, mm -hmm. and they've defeated it because people aren't talking about it as much anymore. But it's the only way to reduce police racism and violence. And so to the extent that the police continue to be racist and violent, which they are, mm -hmm. and they always will be, um, that demand is never going to go away. So, so let's talk about the only way to make the uh, police less uh, racist and violent. So, uh, what that brings to mind is like, let's say sometimes you'll see these kinds of like more like reformist calls, right? That like mm -hmm. cops have more. There's more accountability. That there's like maybe a stronger police ethics commission. Mm -hmm. That perhaps there's even uh, body cameras. And so, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm wondering how does how how would you reconcile that with this approach to defunding the police? Could you still defund the police and have that kind of accountability through body cameras, or how do you 
how do you how do you weigh those yeah. those, those options to make the police less violent? Well, why, why is defunding the police the only option? But I think the first thing you need to recognize is that police departments were not formed in order to keep people safe, and that's not what they do today. And so, you know, 150 years ago, when police departments were being created, people were much more honest about the fact that this is to protect property. Mm-hmm. This is to protect, you know, a, a, a racist and classist, unpatriarchal social order. And so, you know. Um, uh, in, in the 30 years after the Montreal police were created in the 1800s, you look at the jails, and it's massively disproportionately Irish people arrested on disorderly conduct charges. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, that, you know, in some ways, Irish people in North America in the 1800s are, like, very subjugated. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, there's some people even argue that they're not quite white at that particular moment in time. And right, because I heard whiteness is such a, is a, ter- it's a term that can be like, uh, what is it, like a label that can be given and then taken away. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I feel like I've heard that like initially like Irish people, Italians, yeah. all the kind of Catholic Jews. population, Jews, of course, yeah. were not considered part of that uh, white umbrella, which, yes. which now they've perhaps entered that. Yeah, and it'll change, it'll probably change again. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're also disproportion- disproportionately working class at that time. So they're basically, the police exist to throw um, Irish workers in prison um, for being disorderly, but you know, disorderly is a very vague term, mm-hmm. right? Um, disorderly according to whom? Um, and it's only really in the last sort of 50, 60 years that the police have done this an intensive public relations campaign to say that we exist to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided to do that largely because they were really coming under attack for brutalizing um, working class and poor people, racialized people, black and indigenous people primarily. And so we have to recognize that the idea that the police are the best way to keep us safe is a public relations uh, 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 effect. This is not what they're created to do. And so when they're, when we find over and over and over again that they disproportionately harm poor people, people with mental illness, um, black people, indigenous people, I mean, that's police operating as intended. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted to change that, we would want to try to think about how to create, keep each other safe in a different way. Um, in terms of these reforms that have often been proposed, so what people propose are like better police accountability, body cams, better training. Um, so the better training thing and hiring more diverse cops, that's been implemented since the mid-1980s in Montreal and earlier in the United States. Um, there's been some really good anti-racist training programs. You know, police have been through some good anti-racist training programs, better than your average citizen. But their job is to arrest and harm poor people and people of color. Mm-hmm. So, like, it doesn't really matter what's in their head. You know, if you put me on the anti-street um, gang unit, what am I going to do? Right. I mean, my job is to arrest young black people. Mm-hmm. Like, I can be the most anti-racist person in the world, but then I'm just going to get fired because my job, you know, and police are called to throw unhoused people out of metro stations. It's mm-hmm. like, if you train them better, they might do that more kindly. Right, but, but they're still, still doing it. still the job, right? right. Um, body cams... You know, studies have shown that it doesn't have any impact on um, police racism or police violence. Um, and in fact, the police use those, um, those, those recordings that, that occur through wearing a body cam in order to, A, um, wage a public relations campaign against people who have filmed them. Mm-hmm. And so the police always complain that, you know, their legitimacy is being hurt by all these activists filming them, and then editing the videos any way they want and putting them out on social media. So, you know, the Montreal Police Brotherhood is very clear that they want body cams so that they can put out the true account of what happened. But, of course, they're going to edit the films 
uh, the way that they would like. Of course. So this is about public relations. Um, and then the other thing we can think about is, well, we have video recordings of the Montreal police killing three unarmed black people, sorry, two unarmed black people, one black person with a tiny kitchen knife. We have video footage of them killing these people, mm -hmm. and the police have those cops have faced no consequences. So the idea that if we suddenly had body cams, all of a sudden the police would be less violent kind of doesn't work very well when we recognize that, you know, we have video footage and, and um, nothing happens. And so in the history of the Montreal police, um, one police officer uh, lost his job for killing someone, uh, but then he was given his job back. Otherwise, they all carry on and have their, have their wonderful careers. Was there something exceptional about that case that led to that kind of level of, uh, 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 I guess, uh, punishment? Yeah, so the, a police officer named Alain Gosset killed an unarmed black teenager named Anthony Griffin in 1987. Um, and protests against police racism and violence had been growing for a decade prior to that. And when that happened, that was almost like Montreal's George Floyd moment. Right. We didn't have 50,000 people in the streets. You know, it's a smaller city, but we had thousands in the street. Um, and when the cop was found not guilty of manslaughter in a criminal court, a second wave of that protest happened really radical kind of movement, including like older black people, black students at Concordia, as well as tons of white people and other people of color joining in solidarity, really beautiful kind of movement. Um, and made it clear that like, if this wasn't handled, um, it was gonna be really, really hard to, for the police to continue to operate. And so mm -hmm. the police chief at the time said, we gotta fire this guy. And so they fired him. He never got, he never got convicted of manslaughter or murder, but he got fired. Mm -hmm. But then the police brotherhood had his back, contested the firing, and he got his job back. Oh. So that's, that's, you know, and, and the police brotherhood was on that police chief for his whole career, made it very difficult for him, and eventually organized a kind of coup within the police department to have him tossed out. So, you know, if you're, the, the courts have the task of, bring, of, of, you know, convicting someone of criminal charges. Mm -hmm. They never do it. A police chief could fire somebody mm -hmm. in the same way that you can get fired from any job. Of course. Most people, if they kill someone on the job, would lose their job for that. I know I would. <laughs> I know <laughs> I would. Get fired for less than that. Mm -hmm. uh, but police chiefs don't want to do it because the, 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 whole, the, the pressure from the brotherhood? From the brotherhood and the rank and file, like, they gotta, they've got to somehow, you know, manage this police force where you got a whole bunch of police officers who are more loyal to each other and to their union through the, through the kind of blue wall of silence mm -hmm. than to the police director. And if you want to have any, you know, control over what people are doing when they're driving around, not under your surveillance, right? And it's not like you're working at McDonald's and your, your manager can look at what you're doing. Then you somehow have to win their goodwill. So, I mean, all these reasons to me, uh, point to the need to, you know, have about as small a police department as you can, you know, like in the short term, in the next 10 years or 15 years, we probably need some kind of police department, but it should be as small as possible. And think about all the things that the police do that we, that someone else could do better mm -hmm. or that we don't need to do at all mm -hmm. and make that transition. And then when we're down to a small police department, we can talk about how to reduce the need for police work. You know, and so people would say, "Oh, we need we need the police to arrest murderers." Okay, but there's a lot of things we can do to reduce murders. murders so maybe right. we should do that too. Mm -hmm. and maybe we can shrink this down a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I, one of the things that you said that kind of uh, sparked something in me was this idea of um, reducing certain tasks that the police have. Right. Yeah. So like they have this whole uh, bevy of things that they do. Right. Like let's say like traffic, mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
uh, a protest kind of management, mm-hmm. uh, responding to whatever kind of like nine one one calls. Nine one one calls, of course. Right. Uh, one thing that kind of uh, I, th- I think is very relevant to this was that this this thing I read about how cops used to be in charge of ambulances. Mm-hmm. I read that cops uh, I can't remember. It was in the states that used to be in charge of ambulances, but like the rate of mortality in these uh, uh, police run ambulances was so high mm-hmm. that. Eventually, this uh, local city government found out that there's this uh, group of, uh, uh, of black and racialized people who were running their own ambulances who had like a much better system, mm. much better way of keeping people alive. And then eventually, they took that job away from the cops and kind of created this thing of like the ambulance that was kind of under the auspices of the, of, like, the hospital. And it was clearly like immediately like mortality rates, rates went down. Yeah, because maybe, I don't know, you put people in the ambulances who have some kind of medical training right. instead of law enforcement training. Right. I mean, recently, um, Montreal removed parking tickets from a police responsibility because mm-hmm. they decided very intelligently that, like, parking isn't really a question of, like, law enforcement. It's a question of figuring out how we want to manage how people get around in the city and how we want to, you know, make sure people can park but not have, you know, tons of parking. So this is a question of, like, um, sustainable transportation. Mm-hmm. And so they removed that task from the police. So 100 um, positions were removed and given to the sustainable transportation unit, we can go on and on with that, right? So even our police chief, Fadi Degar, will say that, you know, 70 to 80% of 911 calls have nothing to do with criminality. They're calls for service. Mm -hmm. Many cities are moving towards the career, in the same way that some cities, you know, a long time ago decided we're going to have an ambulance service. A lot of cities are moving to create a fourth service. So you have police, fire, ambulance, and a fourth service. And the Forest Service responds to 911 calls that don't have anything to do with criminality. You can hire people with sort of kind of medical or social work training, mm-hmm. get them some cars, route 911 calls to them, and they'll, they'll do that work. And, you know, it would be nice to have people show up with guns as little as possible. possible. Of course. It might be needed sometimes, but like 80% of calls, it's not needed. So let's figure out how to, how to have a better adapted service. Mm-hmm. So I think in the recent uh, budget, in the 2024 budget, there's an additional 10 million for MS, which is for psycho, uh, psychosocial uh, interventions. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Because yeah. that seems somewhat kind of related to this fourth service thing. It could be a really good thing. Unfortunately, it isn't. Um, and so EMS stands for Equipe Mobile de Médiation et d'Intervention uh, Sociale, uh, Mobile Social Intervention, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it was created in 2000 on a, on a pilot basis and has been expanded around the city. And they hire people with social work background to work for Amos. Uh, so they don't carry guns, they don't have uh, the power of arrest, uh, and they have some kind of social work training. Um, and it's billed as a, a, a service that helps people, primarily unhoused people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also described as something that reduces the need for police intervention. Um, but what actually happens is that um, they're not helping unhoused people. They respond to complaints from residents about from businesses okay. and from the police about unhoused people. Okay, sure. And so, you know, their job is to make sure that those people who called them are satisfied, which usually means removing someone from a space, usually, you know, a park or a metro station. Um, and so they operate like the police. Mm-hmm. I think they're preferable to the police because they don't have a gun and they don't have power of arrest. But the thing is, is that they don't respond to 911 calls. So they don't reduce the need for police. Right. Now we have the police and then we have a miss. And, and you know, 
um, in other cities like Toronto, Denver, Edmonton, um, Eugene, Oregon, they would have something like AMIS, but it would respond to 911 calls. So you could reduce the need for police. But now we're just adding another layer. And so in the gay village this summer, um, the city announced that our, our approach to the problems of cohabitation in the village, which basically means the problems that people were housed mm -hmm. have with people who don't have homes, is going to have three layers. And so Imis will go in and try to fix the problem, but meaning remove the person. Right. If that doesn't work, we'll send in a police mixed squad, a squad with a cop and a social worker. If that doesn't work, we'll send in the conventional police. And so now we have three layers of, of policing. And, you know, none of it addresses the actual issue. The root cause. The issue is that we have people who have no place to go. Mm -hmm. That's it. So that's an issue for that person who doesn't have anywhere to go. And it becomes a very surface level issue for businesses and like residents who are disturbed by certain kinds of behavior, mm -hmm. which to me is not a big problem. But you could address it by giving the person a home right. or a place to go during the day. Would be cheaper than the 17000 it takes for each unhoused person, like you were saying before. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that, that seems to tie into this, uh, the thing you were saying about the police uh, being a force designed to either, uh, uh, with like colonial intentions, but also yeah. this kind of property protecting one. Yeah. Because that seems like that still kind of continues that. Yeah, 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 and you know, an unhoused person is a is an anomaly in a, a public space in a capitalist city where every inch of the city is owned either by an individual, a company, or it's public property, meaning it belongs to the colonial state. Um, and so, unhoused people, don't, you know, generally don't have a place to rent. Um, they don't own anything, um, and they don't have money often to shop. And so, like, in the, in the gay village, it's really interesting because they're pedestrianized this street, right. which sounds very nice, but it's a shopping street. It's, you're there to consume. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like it, you know, because I have money to go and get a drink. Yeah, I, I think but the people who don't have money to spend are normally. They become mm -hmm. a problem to get rid of. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting to bring that up because I was talking about this with Drew, who we had on a few episodes before. And it's all these pedestrianization attempts. It's like, well, it's, I, I also agree. I'm like, I like it. These streets are nice now. You know, it's a nice aesthetic thing to have these... Um, but one of the, ch uh, the chief arguments they use is that uh, pedestrians and cyclists spend more, right? So like, you have that still, you have this nice, like, maybe, like, eco-green reason, but it, underneath that, you still have this kind of uh, desire to have people who are more efficient shoppers, more likely to spend their money, right? Aesthetically, it's very nice, but it's, it's, it, it seems a little weak as an ecological argument mm -hmm. when the whole thing is premised on spending more money on things that we presumably don't need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I want to take this back to the... This thing we're talking about, this idea of safety, right? You're talking about this uh, PR attempt by the cops uh, here, and I presume elsewhere in the 80s, right? To be to show that there are these paragons of public safety, and I feel like I run into this kind of uh, a lot, right? You'll meet someone and we'll talk about like defunding the police, and there's this block where they're like, "But don't they make us safe?" So I'm wondering, how do you how do you speak to people who, let's say, this PR campaign has worked on, or who are working with this idea of the police as the protectors and uh, uh, that are in service of uh, citizens in Montreal and elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I, I mean, a big misunderstanding is, is the nature of police work. Because mm -hmm. most of us get educated about what the police do through, like, Law and Order. Mm -hmm. Or, like, I don't know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Sure. Some kind of TV show, right? And it just seems like they're just constantly, like, you know, investigating, finding the bad guys, bringing them to, quote-unquote, justice. Um, if we look at what actually police spend their time doing, we realize that very little of it has to do with 
you know, investigations or doing an arrest. It has to do with just patrolling, responding to calls that have nothing to do with criminality. Mm -hmm. So that's something. Um, I think the other thing, you know, um, and Sandy Hudson from Black Lives Matter Toronto said this, is like, we, we, our perspectives of the police really depend on our social position. So our social class, our, our racial background primarily. And what you find is, is that like white middle class people think the police keep us safe but actually very rarely have any interaction with the police. Mm -hmm. So like someone like me, a white person, middle-class person might imagine that the police keep me safe, but I never see, like the police have no role in my life. Right, right. I, 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 I have some images you might see. In I, I'm obsessed by them, you know, right, but right, like right. they don't, they don't talk to me. They don't, they don't, they don't interact with me. I've never had to call them. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the people that they're targeted, that the police target, have a much different understanding of police. And it's a complicated understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in, 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 in poor racialized neighborhoods, the police are very, very harmful and they're up in people's faces a lot. Mm -hmm. But there also is more violence in those neighborhoods too. So that's, that's a complicated thing. You've got sort of more privileged people who think the police keep us safe, but actually have no interactions with them. So maybe you'd want to have a conversation with them that's a little different. And then you have people who are more marginalized who have many interactions with the police and they're negative, but also there are issues mm -hmm. that, that need to be addressed. And so in that case, you know, we need to think about, well, what do the police do to, to address those forms of, of harm and unsafety that exist? Mm -hmm. And they really do nothing. I mean, if you look at the policing of so-called street gangs in the last 30 years, um, at the very beginning, in, in, in the late 80s, they said, you know, we got to act now, you know, we have to nip this in the bud. If not, you know, in 10 years, we're going to look like New York or L.A. Mm -hmm. or Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, who, who, who had, what are they thinking of? Right, right, what's the image of it? Yeah, they, think, of they think, you know, a lot of gun violence. Um, but 30 years in, they haven't done that. Mm -hmm. They haven't reduced um, gun violence. They haven't reduced um, gangs. Mm -hmm. Um, for very obvious reasons, because what they do actually increases interpersonal violence. It increases people's desire to be in gangs. And there's all kinds of things that you could do to reduce violence of all kinds, reduce gun violence, reduce gang violence, and we don't do them mm -hmm. because we think that the police keep us safe. And this is an argument that Mayor Kaba, you know, an amazing um, African-American intellectual and activist, says, you know, it's just like, we are convinced that the police keep us safe. Um, and because of that, we don't think that we need to do other things. Mm -hmm. And there's so many other things we could do that would actually keep us safe and that, that would reduce, you know, the, the desire to call the police. Mm -hmm. You know, if you could actually reduce the amount of violence in the neighborhoods that are really targeted by the police and affected by interpersonal violence, I mean, that would be a wonderful thing. But we don't do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think, uh, two questions then. Do you think the unwillingness from, let's say, like City Hall to kind of Put the, could, could, uh, I guess, first off, could City Hall put the pressure on the police to lessen their budget? And if so, why have they not done that? I, from what you're telling me, like, I wonder, is that like, you think City Hall is full of these kinds of, like, let's say, like, white middle class types who mm -hmm. believe in this idea of, like, the police making them, like, safer? You know, why, why haven't we seen that kind of uh, reduction of police budgets, even though the public will seems to be there, even though there's this long history of uh, racist violence towards yeah. uh, communities here in Montreal? Yeah, and so the... the the city, the city government sets the police budget. Mm -hmm. So they could increase it, they could decrease it. They could also do a bunch of other things that, that would be useful and they don't do it. So then there's the question, why? 
Um, you know, in Montreal, we're one of the few large cities in Canada that has political parties on the municipal level. The other one is Vancouver. Mm -hmm. But we're different than Vancouver in that we only have two parties. We have Projet Montréal and Ensemble Montréal. Um, whereas Vancouver has sort of three or four parties, including one genuinely left-wing party. Mm -hmm. um, so who are our two parties? We have Projet Montréal, which is a party uh, of white liberal gentrifiers, um, whose base are, you know, white people in gentrifying neighborhoods who like biking, um, who like pedestrianized streets. Me, except I don't vote for these people. Uh, and then we have Ensemble Montréal, which is a more mixed-race party, but based in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit they're a conservative party. And so where in this are you going to get anyone who's critical of the police? Mm -hmm. These people love the police because they're right-wing and because suburban values, I'm generalizing here, you know, suburbs, suburbs are diverse places. But mm -hmm. in general, suburban values have been like, I want my safety. You know, no one should bother me. Of course. Whereas, you know, Historically, if you live in the city, you're supposed to be used to a little bit of disorder, a little bit of different kinds of people. Maybe someone's going to be like, you know, having a problem on the street and is yelling at you. This is what it means to live in a city. And sure. it's fine. But here we have a party where they and their base are not harmed by the police. And so they don't know intimately the harm that the police causes to racialized people and to poor people. Um, and they also benefit from the police. And so, you know, an example that I often turn to is in the summer of 2020, in August, um, three people were, four people in the Rivière de Prairie were shot, three of them killed in gang violence. Mm -hmm. And the mayor of Rivière de Prairie in Puerto Trump, who's a Projet Montréal member, Chris, uh, Caroline Bourgeois, stands at a podium in front of the media that day and says, you know what, I got a call today from one of my residents who said, that she doesn't feel safe anymore, and she's gonna move out of the neighborhood. And I just think, that just tells me that this, this is a problem. This is, we got to do something. And it's like, three of your constituents are dead. Right. Two others saw their buddies shot dead in front of them are now in the hospital. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that somebody called you and said they're thinking of moving. Huh. But, that's, but that's the politics, is the, the, the people that we care about are the people who are afraid of violence that mostly will not touch them. Mm -hmm. um, or the people who are involved in the violence, they're kind of like... We've, they're not citizens, they're not human beings, no. they're criminals, they're not, they're not our constituents. Mm -hmm. And so Projet Montréal from the very beginning has, you know, in many ways been trying to suburbanize the city in the sense of trying to create an urban environment where you never have to be bothered or scared about anything. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's not city living. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, like, we should be safe. You know, we should be safe. We should be doing everything to keep each other safe. But, you know, three black teenagers on the corner that mean me no harm, that's not a safety issue. Mm -hmm. But that's going to that's gonna make somebody afraid. Right. That needs to be re-educated. Or, you know, the unhoused person sitting on the corner, that's not a safety issue, but mm -hmm. some people are going to be upset by this. Um, and Projet Maya caters to those sentiments and those, those fears that are totally unfounded. Um, and so across the board, we've got people who, who love the police. What would you want to see from a municipal party in Montreal? Well, I think, you know, I'd like to see a genuine left-wing party. Mm -hmm. I mean, Projet Montréal is viewed as progressive mostly by the right. And so a Jean-Denis Montréal columnist will say, oh, you know, those progressives with... In, in, in the same way that Joe Rogan calls Justin Trudeau a communist. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But, like, I don't know any actual people who 
identify as left or progressive and know what progressive means, mm -hmm. who think the Projet Montréal is progressive, they do some things that I like. Sure, uh, but, but none of the things that I'd like that they do are necessarily right-wing or left-wing. I like bike lanes, but like, mm -hmm. is that a right-wing or a left-wing policy? Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's a good policy. Um, so I do think we need a left-wing voice in, 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 in city council, um, and, and as large a one as possible. And to me, a left-wing voice is one that puts um, social and ecological justice uh, at the center. And so what's going on with, with people who are poor? What's going on with people who are racially marginalized? How can we create a city where their needs and their interests are priorities? And we're so far from that, right? How do we get there? I mean, we have one city councilor, Craig Sove, who was with Projet Malian for a while, and now he's independent. He's, he's become a, I mean, he's, he's always been a progressive voice, but in that party structure, he was muzzled. Mm -hmm. He maybe wouldn't say that, but he's, I would say that he has much more interesting things to say now than when he was in the party. Um, it would be nice to have a couple more independents mm -hmm. in the short term. And then, uh, you know, in the medium term, we could have a genuine, you know, left-wing party. And it doesn't have to become the government. Just having that presence the pressure can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, you know, I think the way that the media, other than CUTV, covers things, the political debate is the debate between the two major parties. So at right. the federal level, it's like conservatives and liberals. Sometimes they'll talk about maybe what the NDP and the bloc said. But it's like, that's the whole spectrum of debate. And, you know, people I know <laughs> fall very much outside of that spectrum of debate. And so in, in municipal politics, Projet Moyen, if there's anything that, that can be crit criticized uh, about what they do, it's what Ensemble Moyen is criticizing them for. Right. There's no voice to the left trying to hold them to account. Uh, so I think, you know, that, that really needs to happen. Okay, absolutely. So I, I, I guess on another level, like, if we're talking about the things... Before we talk about how the police don't really get to the root issues, right? They get the police are there to attend to the sentiments of, mm -hmm. let's say, like the gentrifiers, mm -hmm. people who are uh, property owners, business owners, uh, about either like uh, unhoused people, either about like young black uh, teenagers. But I'm kind of wondering what. So if we had, let's say, the mu the budget was reduced, mm -hmm. where do you think those that money, those resources could go to uh, attend to the root issues of? what the police is trying to attend to. I mean, I think it would be nice to have a good public discussion about this, right? I don't think, I don't, I'm an academic and I, I don't like the way that some academics try to, you know, substitute their perspective for a for, for democratic process, sure, right? Sure, sure, but I can tell you some things that, that, that I think would be good that are based on, you know, meetings I've been part of, um, protests I've been part of. Um, and so what I can, what you can think of here is like, well, so, Obviously, we shouldn't be spending a dime on policing on house people. Every dime that we spend on policing on house people should be going to providing some some place to be. So that would be a, a very obvious thing. I think you know, I think that it's 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 something that people can understand. Like I think people understand that like it's a little weird that we're spending all this money just chasing people around mm -hmm. because we've harmed them in this way that make, gives them no place to go. Second, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of things that are criminalized that should just be decriminalized. Mm -hmm. So, so drugs and sex work are the most obvious ones. I mean, the the war on drugs um, is a massive failure if you assume that it was trying to achieve what we were told. Mm -hmm. So, we were told that it was to get to take drugs off the streets, and it obviously didn't do I that. Guess, I guess drugs won the war on drugs. They the drugs won the war on drugs. 
Um, drugs are just as available uh, as before. What the policing of drugs does is it increases violence in drug markets because people have to use violence to ensure their debts get paid, to ensure they don't get robbed, because mm -hmm. you can't just call the police if someone takes your stock. Mm -hmm. And it increases the toxicity of the drug supply in, in many ways. And so people are like, drugs are harmful. It's like, drugs can be harmful, um, but drugs are way more harmful because of the way that we organize mm -hmm. um, their distribution in our society. Um, and so we could just decriminalize drugs and, and use that money to like get really good popular education about drugs so people know what the drugs do, how to use them as safely as possible, um, you know, um, um, spread harm reduction principles around the society and make sure that there's really, really good rehab for people who want uh, rehab, none of which we have right now. And then when we're talking about violence, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like medieval to me that our, our solution to violence would be to send violence workers out to arrest the people who commit acts of violence. Mm -hmm. And so what our approach to violence does is either we're arresting someone after the fact, um, which is like, okay, but maybe we could have prevented that. If we can't prevent it, then whatever. This is just, you know, there's going to be some violence in a society. We've all, humans have always had some capacity for violence, mm -hmm. right? But, but obviously we should be doing more than, than just arresting people after the fact. When the police say they're going to prevent violence, then you have operations like Projet Arrête, which is a, the, the, the gun violence unit of, of, the, of the police. They have just basically occupied the racialized neighborhoods in the northeast of the city. They've arrested hundreds of people, sent hundreds of people to prison. And if you look at what they've sent people to prison for, none of it has to do with, like 10% of it has to do with guns. So they're just arresting anybody that they think might one day buy a gun and use it. And, you know, if you're trying to predict who's going to buy a gun and use it, I mean, racism is the only way that you can fashion that prediction, and it's not an accurate prediction. Um, and so, you know, I'll cut back massively on the policing of violence and invest massively in, in violence prevention. Um, and there's, you know, there are models that work in terms of, you know, among other things, um, investing in street outreach workers who can build relationships with marginalized youth, build relationships with them, just be a, a mentor and a guide in their lives. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means that sometimes somebody's involved in something and at some point they don't want to be involved in it anymore and you can guide them to something else. Mm -hmm. It means sometimes you will learn about a conflict that's happening um, and you can mediate that conflict. Like it's kind of it's kind of amazing to me that our approach to like organized interpersonal violence, like gangs and criminal criminal uh, organized crime groups, is always about wiping them out, throwing them all in prison. Right. But like there have been gang truces, mm -hmm. you know, not in Montreal, but in LA, um, across you know the United States, and you know, this stuff got reported in the Canadian media. But um, it's, there's never a thought that maybe we could just do that, right? Mediate some kind of peace between the gangs. Right, because 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 if you do that, you're accepting that they're human beings mm -hmm. and that they have a right to organize themselves in groups. Um, it sort of accepts that this is sort of a harm harm reduction principle. Mm -hmm. You're saying like we actually can't get rid of gangs <laughs> unless we have a ra radically different society where people don't need that kind of social group, but we can radically reduce the violence. Um, maybe we should do that because right, right. what we're doing right now just increases it. So you're talking about the need for this kind of social group. So uh, earlier this year in May, you put out a book. Entitled "Out to Defend Ourselves: A History of Montreal's First Haitian uh, Street Gang," and so I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I'm, I want to ask you about that book. What, what, what did you see was the social need that kind of brought this gang to exist, and 
what were their interactions with the police like? How how's it has how has it informed your own kind of assumptions about these gangs? I'm just kind of very curious as what you learned through this uh, through this through the making the writing of this book. Yeah, and so you know, large large capitalist cities have had street gangs going back to industrialization, and so in Montreal, like many large cities. You know, the, the reports of street gangs going back to the 1830s, 1840s, especially in the 1860s, especially in the 1960s. And, you know, what gangs are formed to do in general is they're, they're generally formed in marginalized neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so Montreal was a pretty white city on stolen land until the 1960s and 70s. So they were predominantly poor white people and especially a marginalized ethnicity. So they're more likely to be Irish, Jewish, Italian. Uh, uh, Portuguese, etc., um, and yeah, they 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 serve a role often in protecting the community against more dominant um, communities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a gang is formed in a neighborhood because that neighborhood, the people in that neighborhood, are getting attacked by the groups from the next neighborhood over. And of course, when you get a bunch of people together, and and you know, the possible use of violence is part of your sort of entente you'll often find that you can make some money too, and that becomes useful in marginalized neighborhoods as well. Um, and so despite that long history of, of gangs in Montreal, it's not until the 80s when you start to see Haitian gangs that it becomes a huge panic, and the police create the first ever anti-street gang squad, which continues to the present. And so looking at this, um, and knowing a lot of Haitian, I have a lot of Haitian friends and comrades in, in, in Montreal, I was like, it seems like, those gangs were probably initially formed to protect the community. And a couple of my friends were like, yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what we hear. And so I managed to uh, track down the leader of the first Haitian street gang, a guy named Maxime Aurelien, who I co-wrote the book with, and he's become a really good friend. Um, and yeah, he formed this group to fight white racists. They were getting, young Haitians were getting attacked everywhere they went in the city, um, uh, especially in the northeast of the city in Montreal North and St. Leonard, they were getting attacked in schools, they were getting attacked in the basketball court, they were getting attacked in metro stations by white groups of racists. So they're either they're white street gangs mm -hmm. or they're skinheads or they're like young biker gangs who, you know, the, the Hells Angels are a racist group. Like, and I don't mean that as like an, inter it's, it's part of their charter. Right. Um, it's not, it's not a, a, a comment on their personalities. And so they formed the gang to defend themselves. Um, and so, for years, they were just getting in fights many times a week, you know, in parks, in schools, in the basketball uh, court, in metro stations. Um, they would also go to the defense of young Haitians around, around the city. So they'd be getting on the bus or getting on the subway and going to Montreal North, going to saint Leonard, going to Longue to, to defend young Haitians who were getting attacked. Um, and so it served, it served, served absolutely a need. And, and that first gang called Les Bélangers, which was formed in, in Saint-Michel, um, those members, including Maxim, eventually helped other neighborhoods to form gangs to defend themselves. And so gangs were, gangs were formed in Montréal-Nord, in, um, Parc X, in Petit-Patrie, to play the same role. Um, and of course, um, some of the members of the gang were also involved in sort of petty crime because mm -hmm. they were poor. You know, and Maxim, uh, you know, was living by himself. Um, his his mom died, and his his dad moved to New York, and so he was doing breaking and enter, breaking enters uh, every day mm -hmm. to to pay his rent to, right. to house stuff. But that wasn't a gang function, um, but it was tr treated uh, as a gang function. Um, 
And yeah, like I said, the police responded like this was the first time the city had ever had gangs and committed to a war on gangs, which, again, meant you have to wipe out the gang. Right. It's not arrest Maxim for a break and enter, which is like, that's what the police are supposed to do. Like, you can't really call that racist. You mm -hmm. know, it's just like, you <laughs> broke the law. Like, mm -hmm. you can get arrested for that. But it's, no, we're going to wipe out the gang. And so including the people who are there just for this, the, uh, you know, as a social group or for protection. Um, and the result of that is the street gang squad has continued in the present and, and gangs have continued in the present. I mean, if you wanted to, like, I don't understand why you would want to try, I mean, I don't, can't see any good reason to decide to wipe out a gang mm -hmm. or to wipe out gangs. A, you're not going to be able to do it. B, like, what is, what is your issue? Because a lot of what they do is just normal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, if the issue is violence, fine. That's great. So let's talk about how to prevent violence. Right. And let's recognize that, like, um, you know, violence exists in every community. And, you know, and gangs mostly attack people who are in gangs. Like, it's, there's an innocent, so-called innocent bystander every couple years. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, there are, like, femicides, like, men killing their partners all the time. Right. We don't do, we don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, so, again, it's like Miriam Kaba said. It's just, like, the police have decided that gangs are the problem. And we believe that policing gangs is going to keep us safe. And it's like, are you serious? Mm -hmm. Like, no one in this room is very likely to be harmed by a gang. We're, we're most likely to be harmed by someone we know. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, psychologically, I think that serves a role. Like, I think that we can't actually deal with the fact that, we're, that we are vulnerable people with, like, skin and blood. We have, you know, finite lives. Mm -hmm. And we are most vulnerable to the people we know. I think we don't want to deal with that. All right. So instead, we just create this image of uh, uh, an outsider that's dangerous. That we that the police stands between us. Yeah, right. and it doesn't have to be racist. Like we don't have to. It doesn't have to be the racial other. Mm -hmm. But racism's really good <laughs> at um, constructing people as particularly dangerous. And so, to the extent that we're not willing to recognize that 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 we are just vulnerable in our lives, um, and that that's what being alive means. Um, and that we don't do the things that we could do to reduce that sort of vulnerability, um, we, we want the police to keep us safe, it's always going to be like, you know, someone whose existence is far, far away from ours. So the racial other, the so-called like person with mental illness, the unhoused person mm -hmm. is going to be the threat, even though that's really not the threat unless, you, unless you're part of that community. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. Thank, thank you for sharing that. I have a... Uh... One final question, I guess, coming back to this current budget mm -hmm. for $821 million towards the SPVM. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in the budget you've seen, uh, in the SPVM budget, that you, I guess if I have to be more specific, are there any strides the current government, the current city government is making that you think are steps in the right direction and you think it's enough? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, it's funny, we, we, this Projet Moyad came to power in the promise of the pink line. They were going right, to, the public transit party. Um, and what they've done in this budget is the, they, uh, um, just the pink line for uh, listeners and viewers is, uh, it was going to be a, it's going to be a metro line, a new metro line that was going to go from, I think like LaSalle through NDG. Uh, it was going to cut through downtown. So it was going to help uh, with, take the pressure off the orange and green lines. Mm -hmm. And then notably, it was going to cut through a very dense and kind of like underserved area, like... Um, all the way up to Mariano. Exactly. All the way up to Mariano, cutting through Rosemont La Petite Patrie, yeah. areas that have been uh, very underserved by uh, public transportation, metros. And specifically, I think notably, these areas were poorer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this party, 
who presumably people voted for because they, they campaigned on public transit, they already to fire 250 people mm. in 2024. So, you know, I, there's, not, there's not anything positive that I can say um, about either um, city party when it comes to public safety. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, I think it's really a shame that, that, that I think Montreal is a great city and I feel like we don't have um, good people governing us. Um, but <laughs> there's, there's a bright side, right? I mean, I think, I, I think, I think one of the things that, that, that is really positive is, you know, people have talked we're going off off script here, you know. Not that there was a script, but but uh, not you know, loud. <laughs> I think that, I think that people can see the connection between different kinds of violence. Like a lot of people have argued that one of the boosts to the Palestine solidarity movement that we're seeing in the streets now in the last two months, which has existed before, but is but is growing, right? Mm. Is the Black Lives Matter movement? It's like that was a moment and a movement that helped us to understand oppression mm -hmm. and violence in a deeper way. And once we get to come to understand, like, those people are experiencing oppression and we, some kind of form of power is using violence against them, mm -hmm. I mean, you can transfer that, right? right and right. so I think, you know, I think the Defund the Police movement and Black Lives Matter movement, they're not as visible now, but that organizing is still happening. Um, and I think anytime you see a movement um, like the Palestine Solidarity Movement that is contesting oppression and violence, that is really important because of that issue itself. But it is, it is also gr fertile ground for a broader kind of anti-oppressive and anti-violence politics. And so I don't, you know, if you'd ask me this question at any point in history, I think I would say that I don't see a lot of hope in our government at that time. Mm -hmm. um, there have been moments of more hope than right now. Um, my hope lies in the people. And, uh, and I think that people are doing all right. I think that people are doing well, people even the kids. Nice. Kids are all right. The kids are especially all right. Thank you very much, Ted, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, this is a very engaging discussion. Lots of lots to cover. We'll, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I guess when that spark happens, right? When the mm -hmm. when uh, when the cops are going to mess up once more, because they probably will, judging by the uh, trajectory of things. Uh, we'll be right back with. Actually, hold on. Do you want, where, where can people follow you? Uh, you, can follow, you can follow me on Twitter at. Ted Rutland. You can follow me. That's where I do sort of more stuff like this. Mm -hmm. You can follow me uh, on Instagram if you like as well, at Ted Rutland again. That's more a mix of uh, like memes and uh, political outrage. Important. important. And more of a like, uh, digestible, funny form. There you go. There you go. It's, important, it's important to do that kind of stuff. And also you can get Ted's book on Fernwood Publishing. Out to defend ourselves, a history of, the, uh, history of Montreal's first Haitian street gang. Yes. Terrific. We'll be right back with Hello Goodbye Line. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Metropolis. We're back on our segment, Hello Goodbye Line, with our journalists. Today we have Savannah Craig from Local 514. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to make that drone out. All right. Savannah, what do you have for us today? What have you been seeing? What have you been reporting on? What's been on your radar in general? Yeah, for, um, I've been covering something for a few months now that I uh, just released the story on last week. Um, I've been looking at how unmarked burials um, have been labeled as a hoax. Um, when I say unmarked burials, uh, these are the uh, unmarked um, graves and burial sites associated with uh, um, residential schools in Canada. So um, 
essentially, uh, where this started is in 2021, 215 possible unmarked burial sites were discovered in Tekemlut's Tishwetmink. Uh, this is in uh, British Columbia. Uh, and this sparked searches uh, to be conducted across the country. Um, but there's been lots of mistrust uh, within these searches, and some are labeling it as a hoax, even in the media as well. Um, and this has caused some people to show up to site, show up to these, um, you know, potential grave sites with shovels, um, oh, demanding a dig. Terrible. Yeah, it is. It is terrible. Um, I I interviewed uh, the independent special interlocutor for missing children and unmarked graves and burial sites associated with Indian residential schools. Her name is Kimberly Murray. That's a long name. Not Kimberly Murray, but her title is long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had to take a few breaks to yeah, check on it, but um, yeah, I've uh, I first met her at um, there was a national conference in Montreal that I attended as well as my colleague Ode. Uh, we attended in September. Um, that is an annual national conference that happens in in different cities across Canada. This year it was in uh, Montreal, so uh, we had met first there for an interview, but a few weeks ago I conducted another interview um, and. Uh, we can we can take a look at a little clip of what she has to say. For people who we'll just go to the next slide. Have the idea that you know why can't we just start a dig? You know that there's going to these sites. There you go. What would you? What would you? This is Savannah Craig interviewing Kimberly Murray, the special interlocutor. Well, first I would say, would you like me to go dig up your ancestors? I'm not going to say that. You already did that for me. Don't want to actually exhume the children's bodies. They want to protect the grounds and make sure there's no development on top of those cemeteries. Um, and they want to do ceremonies uh, so that they can call the spirits of those children back to their communities. There are some. Uh, well, first I would say, would you like me to go dig? uh, but it's not that simple when we talk about a full cemetery ground because if they don't know what in those grounds do, we're not going to dig them up until there's a full consultation with the various communities that are doing the sacred work. So many of the residential schools, as people know, they had the children from 30, 40, 50, 60 different communities. And so that, those conversations have to happen on a nation-to-nation basis about what they're going to do. Uh, the deaths that happened in the Indian residential schools, the documented deaths that happened in Indian residential schools, and also the fact that we have found um, and burials long before individuals So, you know, it, it's an ongoing sort of disappointment, concern, um, that individuals are really talking about the deaths that happened in Indian residential schools, the documented deaths that happened in Indian um, and also the fact that we have found uh, burials of children long before it's a Kimlet's happened. Um, so, you know, it, it's an ongoing sort of disappointment, concern um, that individuals are 
uh, really traumatizing communities as they're doing this uh, already traumatic work that they have to do. So um, I had asked her what, what she thought of people showing up to, to sites uh, with shovels, essentially demanding a dig. Mm -hmm. her, uh, her response was very... Uh, Pointed and kind of, uh, I would say, pissed off. Maybe that's not quite journalistic language, but uh, yeah, no, she, uh, I think she made a clear kind of um, case that's sort of uh, dis disrespectful, right? It's mm -hmm. disrespectful towards these communities who do not want these, uh, excuse me, who do not want these burial sites exhumed. And also, it's kind of very, very forceful, right? She was mm -hmm. like, she, I think her, she was saying, like, how would you like if I came to your ancestors' graveyard and dug them up, right? So mm -hmm. it's clear that. Um, these people believe it's a hoax who want to dig it up. That's, uh, I think she's clear that she thinks that's an incredibly disrespectful act. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and to give more contact on her role, uh, she was hired by the federal government um, to essentially put together a report of what should happen to these burial sites, you know, after a dig is completed. Um, because a lot of communities have concerns about what can happen as some of these sites are on private land. So, you know, currently um, for the sites that are on private land, they can't, you know, conduct ceremonies and, and kind of, you know, allow for people to visit these sites, um, which is important to many in their own healing journey around residential schools and um, intergener intergenerational trauma caused by, um, you know, Canada's genocide of Indigenous people. Of course, and ongoing violence. Ongoing violence. Um, and she, she, is in, she made this very clear when I interviewed her in September, um, is that she's invited into communities. She doesn't just go. Um, she waits until she's, she's invited to come. And then once she is invited and, and she attends these communities, um, she meets with residential school survivors, um, you know, community members, leaders in the community um, to kind of hear from everyone, uh, to have their input uh, put forward and, and hear what, what should happen mm -hmm. to these sites. Um, and she also helps decide um, how much money these communities receive uh, in order to carry out these digs. Um, so she, she also, I mentioned that she puts together a report. She released a report this past summer, um, and her mandate, uh, will be completed this upcoming summer and she will release her, uh, her final report. Um, for people who want to read these reports, uh, they are available on her website. Um, I guess I kind of want to talk about the process of uncovering these unmarked burial sites because I think when I first decided I wanted to cover this story, I was trying to understand, you know, why why are some people running with this hoax narrative? Mm -hmm. um, and I found it to be that a few things that came up is that language is really important. Um, there's a lot of critique over, you know, these sites being called mass graves. Um, the proper terminology uh, seems to be uh, unmarked graves and burial sites. Um, you know, included in her title. Of course. Um, and I think that mistrust is coming from here because essentially what, what happens um, in this process is that many communities are using ground-penetrating radars. Um, it's something that I covered in the episode. Um, I showed some visual examples which help give people an idea of what these look like. Essentially, um, it's looking for what they call anomalies, um, which could be a grave. It doesn't mean that they are. Uh, anomalies are essentially shifts in soil detected in the ground. Um, and these 
shifts in soil can can occur you know naturally um but it can also occur when a grave is dug mm -hmm. and shifts in soil density specifically i think exactly mm -hmm. yes thank you um and you know I think that a lot of indigenous communities are careful to call these anomalies. Um, you know, some people also say suspected graves, you know, burial sites, because it, it has been proven that many, in, there are records, many indigenous children uh, who died were buried near residential school sites. Uh, so it's more a matter of where are they rather than did it happen. Um, and some communities are also using um, uh, aerial uh, technology to, to detect, uh, you know, these shifts in, in soil density. Um, so yeah, I think it is like really important for people to understand that not all anomalies are unmarked burial sites, but right. that, that doesn't mean that there aren't graves out there. Um, so you think because of that kind of distinction that like they're doing these kinds of uh, search searches or uh, I guess scans, the fact that there's some of them that might not be 100%, some people can take that as to mean that, oh, none of them are, or mm -hmm. they take that kind of like potential to mean something like either less or more than it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Because there have been some communities that have conducted, um, you know, uh, like searches in terms of they've reached the stage where they're digging into the ground. Some communities have not, you know, found graves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of fueled the hoax narrative. Um, but, you know, there, there are records. Um, even uh, a few months ago, um, a community in Saskatchewan uh, a jawbone was unearthed uh, that they detected to be um, belonging to a boy who was from from over a hundred years ago. I believe he was around five years old. Um, so, and, and this just happened to be unearthed by a gopher. Uh, okay. So, it's just kind of this process has to. It takes time, um, but I think that we need to be really cautious of the language we're using around these, that, you know, not all anomalies are unmarked burials, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We, right, have, right. we have records. Part of the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, here in Montreal, uh, we do have potential a potential unmarked burial sites. Um, and I think that this case is interesting because it's not affiliated with a former residential school. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually uh, on the grounds of the old Royal Victoria Hospital, um, which was uh, which is near the Allen Memorial Institute, where the former CIA-led MKUltra MK testing was conducted. Um, so in Montreal, there's a group of Mohawk women known as the Ghanis Dansara, uh, also known as the Mohawk Mothers, um, and they're fighting for an indigenous-led search at these grounds. Um, they took McGill to court um, in order to halt construction. Uh, currently, McGill is constructing on, um, on this site. Uh, and um, they they want to halt this construction in order to allow for an indigenous-led search of the grounds. Um, the Mohawk mothers are alleging that uh, indigenous children were experimented on and buried near the hospital, um, you know, during these experiments. Um, last month, the judge to the case agreed that both McGill and Quebec's public infrastructure company, the SQI, breached their contract um, because they fired uh, the appointed expert panel of archaeologists to lead um, an 
an investigation into the possible uh, unmarked burials. Um, essentially, the expert panel uh, was a part of a deal that was struck in April um, between uh, between the developers and the Mohawk mothers. Um, and you know, McGill and the SQI had not had not up, upheld this part of the contract. Um, it seems like they want to just kind of blaze through with it, you think? Yeah, because they have, you know, I, I attended a, a court hearing um, in October, and um, essentially, you know, McGill is trying to show that we, we are conducting a search, but they're conducting their own search. Mm -hmm. On um, their terms, with the things they want. Exactly. Right. And um, there was a representative of the Mohawk Mothers that was speaking in court, and she was saying, you know, uh, we're not allowed to see some of these documents like we want to be a part of this process we want to you know be able to see you know what's being uncovered um they also said that they had um gone to the site and were kind of asking questions you know asking for evidence and they said that they were being mistreated alleging uh, alleging racism as well mm -hmm. um so it kind of seems that from what they're saying, they're really being pushed out of this process mm -hmm. when, you know, this is the reason why they've taken McGill uh, and the SQI to court. No, of course. Yeah, yeah no. It's uh, fascinating, yeah. It's, yeah, because it's, it's like there's there's known cases of, like, these the kind of victims of those uh, CIA experiments there, but I think up to now, I haven't heard about any of them being uh, specifically Indigenous or Indigenous children, but I think there's something about the allegation that does sort of track, right? And when we think about, like, the kind of place... Indigenous people, not just in Canada, but around the world, have held in like our medical systems as like mm -hmm. how they're kind of seen as like either to, by by the system in some regards as like disposable or potential kind of like potentials to like experiment on and do kind of different um, unsightly un un things too. So mm -hmm. it wouldn't strike me as off the mark if this were true, but it was still it's still kind of ongoing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it, it's an important part of reconciliation where, of you know, many institutions uh, such as McGill Concordia, uh, you know, they, they vocalize support for reconciliation. They do, um, you know, land acknowledgments that were on unceded Mohawk land. Um, but it's important moments like these where, you know, Indigenous people are being shut out by trying to, you know, heal from from past trauma and you know look into to what happened to members of the Mohawk community whether you know there are unmarked burials or not um, I don't think that Miguel pushing them out of this search process uh, is is very helpful for reconciliation and, and building ties between communities oh, yeah I wonder <laughs> <laughs> Um, so essentially, recently, the update is that the court uh, ordered McGill and the SQI to, to rehire the panel. Uh, I've been in touch with one of the Mohawk mothers, uh, uh, Gonatenta is her name, um, and she said that the Mohawk mothers have returned back to court uh, as she says that, you know, following the court order, um, McGill and the SQI have continued with construction uh, without oversight from the expert panel that they were, um, you know, essentially... Uh, told to rehire by the court. Um, and the Mohawk mothers are also calling for McGill to release the records of Indigenous children uh, that were experimented on at the Old Royal Victoria Hospital um, in order to help support the search. Um, McGill did not respond to a request for comment. Uh, the SQI uh, did respond to me and they said that they cannot 
uh, comment further on the situation. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much the local update, but I think that it is an interesting case because it's, it's not affiliated with a residential school site. Um, and even Kimberly Murray, when I interviewed her, she said, she made it clear that, you know, not all unmarked burial sites, uh, are near residential schools. She also said that, you know, some, some sites near residential schools were, were, um, overflowing essentially so mm -hmm. they had to re relocate bodies elsewhere mm -hmm. uh just because there wasn't enough room oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting because I, I guess it's i guess yeah we have all this i guess not not even recent anymore, but this kind of building news right about kind of unmarked burials and that's attached to this idea of residential schools right and you have this idea of like the children that have been kind of like pretty uh inhumanely cruelly kind of like set aside and like left in the ground without any kind of like consideration, right, of who they were, no, no, no. And it's interesting to think about this one case at McGill, right, uh, about how that kind of, how the kind of, uh, I don't want to say a tactic, but this kind of result of an unmarked, uh, unmarked gravesite is still kind of there and still kind of present. And I think, to me, at least what that talks about is this kind of like, again, like I was saying before, about how these kinds of organizations, whether it's residential schools or even here with like McGill and the CIA, potentially, potentially, because it hasn't been confirmed, but how they might be, how they might consider these kids or these indigenous people who have been kind of disposable and also not worth any kind of like proper like proper uh i've got the word there's a new burial you know mm -hmm. they weren't given the proper burials and there's not any kind of notice they're given and they're just kind of seen as like all right whatever like let's bury them but again i say that but we haven't the the seems like research is still going on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it should be interesting seeing what comes of that i think kind of a word that kept coming up um, while I was covering this story is, is truth. Um, you know, when I was in court, <laughs> yeah, right so on the screen. when I was in court, um, you know, it, it, it came up a lot, essentially, you know, the Mohawk mother is saying, you know, we're, we're searching for the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth will come out. Um, and when I was actually, we were going to go film, uh, near the construction sites for this story. Uh, I was walking along Pine Avenue and I came up to this man who was, weaving in the fence behind behind this fence is the construction site mm -hmm. and right on this fence he was weaving in truth um and at that point i have been trying to reach the mohawk mothers uh to have an interview uh it was leading up to to one of their court hearings so obviously they were very busy um and i just happened to stop and say are you part of the mohawk mothers <laughs> and he said yes i am um and we chatted a little bit and he ended up telling me that Every day a representative comes to this site to weave truth into this fence. And mm -hmm. he said every day it's taken down. Oh, um, so they, they weave. So just for our audio listeners, we're looking at yeah. a picture of uh, right in front of uh, the Royal Victoria. We have this kind of construction fence uh, put up between the streets, the sidewalk and the between the sidewalk and the uh, building. Uh, into the fence, we have the word truth. Uh, woven in with uh, orange textiles, it seems. And so, yeah, you're telling me that someone from Mohawk Mothers goes to weave in this word into the fence, and every time it's taken down. Yeah, that's, that's what they told me. That's interesting. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and and really seemed to be a word that kept coming up. Uh, you know, in the few months that I was covering this story. I don't know why they're taking it down. It seems. I mean. Bad press. Bad press, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Seems like they're only willing to comment on it. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I remember after, 
they put out the injunction and the injunction I thought was really interesting because this is, I feel like it's the first I've heard of it anyways of like this is an injunction coming in from an indigenous led kind of community mm -hmm. organization uh, onto like this much larger institution right that's like McGill and the SQI as well and to me that was seemed like a sort of like a good step in the right, a step in the right direction. It's like, oh, it's interesting seeing like these indigenous communities use these kinds of legal tools to kind of stop development, to try and get towards the truth that they are seeking, as we see with this uh, this this woven uh, word. But I remember after after some of the initial reports, the initial findings from the ground penetrating radar people they hired, it seemed to be that it was something like nine anomalies, and there was a few of them were they had this categorization system of like likely. Potential and then unlikely. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, I think for Miguel, it seemed like it seemed to be that this report was generally put things in the unlikely category. Mm -hmm. And for that, wherever they're like, okay, we did our job, now it's time to move forward, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember not too long after that, that's when I saw like Miguel starting to do more advertising. They put out like some uh, renderings of what the new uh, rural Victoria site's going to look like. And at least to me, it really seemed like they want to wash their hands of this. They're like, all right, we did our job, now let's like build our big expensive mm -hmm. like building now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, an interesting point I heard in court, uh, you know, when the Mohawk mothers uh, had their had their chance to to argue, is that they had essentially said that in McGill's own search through the ground penetrating radars, um, what they qualified as a potential grave site was essentially the dimensions, the size of uh, of a coffin, oh. and they were saying this doesn't actually work because it's likely many of these bodies, potential bodies, if they were buried there, they were not buried in a coffin. Right, right. They would just be well, without coffin into yeah, the ground. just the body. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of telling when these people, these people being McGill, let's say, uh, have these very limited or specific kind of criteria that they're looking for, right? Because because it's so specific. Because they're specifically looking for a coffin and they don't have a much more inclusive or broader um, de definition for like what they're looking for for the body or the sign of a body. It shows you like they have the specific definition and clearly that's not met, unlikely to be met as some people are saying. And because that's not met, they're like, okay, we did our job. Now we can kind of continue off without yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Concerning. Um, a few weeks ago, when I when I spoke um, with one of the Mohawk mothers, she said that she was actually in, or there was a group were actually in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, helping um, another indigenous community, essentially, uh, you know, in the legal process of uh, of of something similar to this. So she was saying, you know, we want to, we've been successful, and we want to. Uh, it's successful in terms of challenging the institution. Mm -hmm. um, to you know, in, include them in the process and and not carry out this process alone uh, without kind of uh, showing people what's going on with the search. Um, so I thought that was interesting that it's not only happening in other communities, but they they want to offer their support. Um, and I think something else that's been interesting in this in this court uh, case is that um, the Mohawk mothers did not have legal support. Um, they essentially defended themselves, um, wow. not as lawyers. Wow, wow, wow. that's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah, wow. it was. It was uh, really impressive, honestly. Kudos to them. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of jump back to the whole hoax narrative and, you know, question where is this coming from? Um, you know, there has been some uh, news outlets pushing this narrative, uh, uh, people on social media as well as politicians. 
um, last month, uh, a counselor in PEI, his name is John Robertson, uh, he had to pay a $500 fine uh, for posting a sign saying, truth, mass grave hoax. Um, he, he posted this ahead of uh, the, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on Truth? September 30th. Mass? Truth, uh, colon, mass grave hoax. And where do you post, where do you post this sign? Essentially on, um, I can't recall how, I can't recall what you call them, but you know, like outside of churches, there's like the text box. Oh, sure, even sure, high sure, schools. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to describe that better than me. Yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, it's usually just like a little like marquee, I guess, uh, that's outside like a church that just says like Sunday service at this time. But I guess he made it say truth, grave mass, mm -hmm. grave, mass grave hoax. Exactly. Kind of like to promote the whole, you know, these graves are, are a hoax narrative. <laughs> yeah. Chilling. Yeah. Um, last month, he it was announced that he would be suspended for six months and uh, ordered to write an apology uh, as well as paying this $500 fine. Um, you know, I think that that's kind of looking for some form of accountability, but once these statements are made, um, you know, this narrative really, really takes off. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah. it's a bit difficult to see that, you know, politicians... Elected. Yeah, elected yeah, officials, officials are kind of are, repeating this. Yeah. I mean, they have pretty... I mean, even though I mean, he has a large platform, people people pay attention to what they're saying, and they, they, look to, they look to elected figures for some sort of evidence, and it's kind of concerning when one is saying that, oh, it's a hoax. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to show an example from uh, the National Post. Uh, we could put that slide on the screen. <laughs> uh, essentially, um, when I was putting together this story, uh, well, before I had even put together the story, I had come across some coverage from the National Post. Go ahead, you wanna? Yeah, so here we have uh, an article in the National Post by Terry Glavin. The year of the graves, how the world media got it wrong on residential school graves. And the subheading is, <clears throat> the coverage triggered protests, church arsons, and condemnation from Canada's bad faith rivals. But last summer's reporting on the country's long acknowledged historic shame had little to do with what happened. So I think I had come across some articles. Um, yeah, and there's Trudeau. Yeah, a photo of Trudeau kneeling at a small flag in a field prior to a ceremony and inside of a foreign residential school. This is such a, a, a photo stunt, but whatever. <laughs> I think we saw Neil during BLM. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> um, so essentially, uh, you know, before I got the idea that I wanted to cover uh, unmarked burials as a hoax and, and you know, look at what's happening <coughs> locally, um, I had come across uh, some reporting by the National Post. Um, and, you know, Many of their articles, this article included, uh, it, and I think especially this one specifically, it, it really challenged, um, you know, the, the terminology of mass graves when what you should be saying is unmarked, burial, uh, unmarked graves and burial sites. Um, and I think that they're essentially challenging this because mass graves have, have made people think that, you know, all anomalies are... Uh, our mass graves, mm -hmm. um, but it's like we're still in this process of, of uncovering these sites. Um, so I think I kind of, it got me thinking because I had heard someone speaking about they saw this headline and they were going, oh, all these grave sites, they're a hoax, they're not real, you know, this is such mm -hmm. a big lie that's being 
you know, I guess blown up because we are seeing a part of the, the marches, you know, such as the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, you know, the, the numbers of, of potential graves. Um, and I think, you know, in cases, especially with the National Post, they have a tendency for sensational headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that, you know, unfortunately people do read headlines without really breaking into the article. And this was an interesting case, I think, especially the subhead. Um, you know, uh, the coverage triggered protests, uh, you know, last summer's reporting on the country's long acknowledged historic shame had little to do with what happened. I think that, you know, it, it, it's interesting when you read it, you know, the kind of correction and critique on the terminology, but I think that we just have to be cautious. Um, and the last slide I want to show, uh, is a reaction, um, to, you know, the, 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 yeah, um, so I found this on Twitter, uh, at fake Kyle Lewis, <laughs> he writes, get ready for more, uh, quote, graves, unquote, to be discovered, this time in Montreal, dot, 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 biggest hoax in Canadian history. Um, so, you know, when we're seeing our, our politicians, uh, not you know, Kyle Lewis, though. He's <laughs> no, he's not a politician. Not yet and not ever. <laughs> <laughs> when we're seeing our politicians, um, you know, promote this hoax narrative um, and, you know, kind of sensational headlines, you know, uh, promoting a hoax narrative or critiquing this kind of, uh, you know, uh, process in in discovering these potential unmarked burials. Uh, It can lead to narratives like this. And, you know, something I discussed in the episode is is harassment of indigenous communities. And Mm -hmm. it, it it fuels people to feel like they have the power to show up to these burial sites with shovels. Um, and that just furthers a lot of trauma. I think mm-hmm. that we just need to let it take its time to to discover, uh, you know, where are these graves? Mm-hmm. As I said before, we we know that there's 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 bodies somewhere. There's so many indigenous children that died in these schools. So it's it's not a matter of if. It's just when will we discover them? Right. Exactly. To what extent? Yeah. yeah. It's uh. I it speaks also to the importance of being careful with like the kind of language you're using right and how you deploy that language right because mm-hmm. clearly they had the national post article which i think is a bad faith article but just because they're shining this kind of criticism towards this kind of idea of like mass graves suddenly it's like i, I feel like there's also the the other end of it right where you have from like um or like let's say a population of like settlers who are clearly disturbed by these kinds of um <laughs> who are disturbed by these kinds of uh developments and findings that now the fact that they get this even potential that they can be free of that guilt by someone even suggesting it's a hoax, I feel like people take to that, right? Where they're like, okay, who? This kind of like real concern I had about being a settler on this kind of like land that has been kind of formed by like genocide and oppression. Suddenly, I get the idea that it's a hoax. Maybe that's like, that can like, I can, maybe it is a hoax. That way my conscience can remain like clean, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's what makes me, uh, makes me think of anyways, but that's a... Quick thought. Uh, I was wondering, do you have any um, final, final, final thoughts on this? Uh, I think it's something we can explore more in the future on this show. Of I course. think it would be interesting, but I, I think just to kind of uh, um, comment on the point that you made, I, I think that it's it's bringing up a lot of feelings for for you know Canadians, especially very patriotic Canadians, because they feel they can't celebrate their identity. Um, 
you know. Right, right, right. They're asking themselves, what does it mean to be Canadian? For them, it used to be this thing to celebrate, and now it's like, perhaps the, uh, the question is uh, a little more ambiguous. Well, the answer is more ambiguous yeah. now. I think personally, them. you know, we can celebrate how lucky we are to be in this society while recognizing that, you know, for many white Canadians, they have a different, they, you know, they have a lot of luck, but they also have, you know, <laughs> a society that's made for them. Sure, I sure, think sure, we sure. just need to reflect on, you know, who's kind of not prioritized in our society, who's still facing, you know, forms of genocide and, you know, react to that. Cause I think that that would make us a better woven society and, it, you know, better to be proud to be Canadian. There you have it. There you have it. Thank you, Savannah. Thank you for having me. Of course. That would be answer. We have an issue because they need to studio for by for three forty five. Okay, let me talk to them. Uh, no, no, we don't have time. Right, we just have to get out to jump on. Okay. Uh, sure. and we have, we have like a hard cut at 345. Okay. All right. Yeah. But did they not know we were in here? Yes, but apparently it's, it was a mix up. Don't ask. Do you have the uh, mic? It's like, it's not a problem. Like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to go into this in like 10 minutes, but uh, I, I would say just. Fucking. Yes, technically. We can just go off the slides. Yeah, I guess it's gonna be more of a discussion than uh. Is it just the it's the three? Where's the third one? It's the last. Oh, I think yeah. yeah. Just, oh, sorry. Christmas. Christmas is the okay. last one. If you had to summarize it. Um, if you didn't, never mind. <laughs> I'm trying to. I, I can't think right now. I'm sorry. Oh, do you mind Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just opening my, uh... My two? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, we're gonna have to... Are we ready? We have to what? Just... Me. Yeah. Also, Where's your mic? by the way, when... Oh, okay. Just sorry, like, this looks like end in like five, ten seconds. <laughs> five, ten? <laughs> yeah. Because you need ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, gotcha, another ten minutes. <laughs> I got so prepared. My childhood. Yeah, okay. Um, three, two, one. Oh, hello there. How are you doing, notes? I'm doing great, and you? Pretty good, pretty good. Sorry, I got distracted by some noise outside. <laughs> so for Hello the Bylines, welcome back onto the, the segment. You would like to talk about... <laughs> we're live. We are live. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome back, though, to uh, Hello the Bylines. Today, I believe you are talking about Indigenous-led community organizations here in Montreal and some funding requirements that they are... In need of. Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, around the winter time, uh, organizations such as Residence Montreal, as well as the Native Women's Shelter and uh, the Ishkwe Project, uh, will usually ask for funding. Uh, they will they will hold like fundraisers, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the Nation Drives, for people to be able to uh, give money, uh, gift cards, winter clothing clothing in general, food, uh, any type of thing that can support 
uh, unhoused communities better, mm-hmm. um, and they're doing they're doing it this year as well. Um, I know that, for example, Résidence Montreal has a uh, fundraiser happening on December seventeenth, so this weekend. Uh, but yeah, so recently uh, they've been asking for more money because um, the 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 situation for um, for organizations have been uh, they've been less and less funded by by our municipal government, mm-hmm. uh, and this is happening with Résidence Montreal. Résidence Montreal has actually written a letter to the city of Montreal. Um, to ask for more I funding. I believe we have that letter. Yeah, we do have that letter. Let's read this. All right, so let me, let me read this out. This is from Resilience Montreal to the city of Montreal. On behalf of Resilience Montreal, we would like to share some of our challenges. From this time last year, we have seen a 33% increase in the number of people using our services. 350 people served per day from up, up from last year's 250 per day. This has been further increased since Chedoris closed their homeless day center and are only giving services for those who have, quote, fixed accommodations, unquote. From this time last year, our recent realities include, uh, first bullet point, a huge increase of those in need of resilience services, approximately 1,200 meals per day, decrease in well-being among, those, among the participants who come to resilience, not sleeping enough, not lack of food security, significant shortage of funding for basic needs such as food, shelter, housing, cleanliness, lack of winter clothing in our clothing deposit for both men and women, more community members needing crisis intervention, a steady increase of violence against indigenous women at Cabot Square. This is a result of Chedoris being closed. The Ishkwe, thank you. The Ishkwe project statistics from August 22nd, 2023 to November 8th, 2023 show there are 13 missing persons cases, eight missing persons cases without involving police, five hostage slash kidnapping situations, Six situations of human trafficking, sexual exploitation. Eight cases of single instant sexual assault. 24 cases of intimate partner violence. And one murder slash suspicious death. As the cold weather approaches, we are also concerned about the lack of truly accessible warming spaces within the area. We are requesting urgent additional funding in order to stay open and continue providing our services to some of the most marginalized people in Montreal. We are struggling to cover basic costs for food and for food and to pay our incredible staff. Therefore, we are requesting $500,000 to hold us over through the holiday season. We're aware that the city of Montreal is committed to a 10-year funding of $158 million to an animal shelter. We're, <coughs> excuse me, we are asking for a fraction of that commitment in the spirit of reconciliation. This would fulfill the city of Montreal's reconciliation strategy sections three and section four. Um, yes, yeah, so exactly. So they've been asking, Residence <coughs> uh, Montreal has asked the city of Montreal for money, so as uh, it is written in the letter, it's five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which is uh, basically like three hundred times less than like the one one hundred and fifty eight million dollars right. that was given to an animal shelter. Um, Eight hundred twenty one million given to the police. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So again, just asking for five hundred thousand dollars is not it's not a lot, especially if it's going towards staff as well and for resources. Mm-hmm. It's 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 nothing, you know. And I think that a, an important point to consider as well is that uh, the fact that like an, I'm not saying that you know an animal shelter doesn't deserve that type of money. Of it does, obviously. Like uh, it is very important. But I'm saying the the difference in what is being asked and what was given to an animal shelter and what is being asked by uh, indigenous led uh, community centers and resources is quite it's it's jarring right. to see 
um, especially like there's a certain equivalent that's being made in if you look at like what is being asked uh, and what is being given, uh, which is quite. I don't think people understand what is what it is implying. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what do you think it's implying? Because uh, there is. I mean, I don't want to go too much into detail, but I think there is. It is important to talk to think about uh, the the historical like uh, kind of. Um, I forgot a word, but the historical kind of uh, narrative that like people of color have been seen as, I don't want to say less than animals, but less than animals. Sure, sure. Uh, asking for, again, asking for $500,000 is not a lot. It's mm -hmm. really not a lot. If you can give that much money to the SPVM, if you can give that much money to an animal uh, shelter, you can definitely give way more to uh, to an uh, indigenous-led uh, community center and resources. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, one thing that's important also to know is that Residence Montreal has said that if they don't receive the money, if they don't receive more funding, they might have to close for the holidays, mm. which is very dangerous. Like, we're currently in winter. Right. The, the weather is going uh, sub-zero, as they say. Uh, so more and more people are at risk of, it without shelters and, like, resources being offered more and more people are at risk of like you know dying during this winter you know course, yeah, like yeah. They, they can't find shelter we've seen this before with Elisa P. Putuguk we've seen it with Rafael Napa Andre as well who both have died due to due to like uh, the conditions of the the harsh winter mm -hmm. in 2021 mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's very important that we are able to uh, kind of you know uh, support those uh those uh, centers and uh, resources um, financially. And I think also another problem, the thing is like a, a big issue with this is that um, they're asking money to the municipal government, which the municipal government should give. Mm -hmm. But the municipal government has a tendency to anything that has to do with unhoused population, they have to the tendency to put it on the back of uh, the provincial government. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of goes back and forth uh, non-stop and nothing is really being done. I know that in this situation, the city of Montreal said they would reach out to uh, Residence Montreal, but uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it goes. But even then, like it's been years and years where uh, they have been asked to help with uh, more long-term solutions to the winter, but also to uh, homelessness. Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen that much uh, progress mm -hmm. having been done. So, and the, th the thing as well is that when you think about it, uh, an indigenous person is 27 times more likely to be unhoused than a non-indigenous person. Mm -hmm. That's a lot, uh, especially considering that indigenous uh, people are only 5% of the Montreal population. That's, to be 27 times more likely to be unhoused, despite being such a low number of the population on the island, mm -hmm. is, it's, it's, it's quite... It's, a, it's quite exactly. a big... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 incredibly yeah. So. so. I think it's good, it's good to hear that the city of Montreal, they said they're going to reach out to Resilience in, after this letter. I think that's yes. that's good, but it's also like you don't want things to get to this level, yeah, right? Exactly. You don't want things to get to this level where like you have an organization like Resilience that feels like it has to kind of write this open letter as like a as a kind of pressure method. Yeah, right? you, you, exactly. you would want this to be just naturally part of the municipal government's thinking of like, all right, winter's coming up, what can we do? along with the help of the provincial government, rather than being like, no, you guys do this, we're not going to touch this, right? Yeah. You want them to be working in partnership to almost, almost what is it, like, proactively kind of yeah, like exactly. think about these kinds of things. Yeah. It's not like winter's like a surprise. We know, we know it's going to come every year. Montreal's no winter's yeah, cold, lots of snow, but I don't know. It's, uh, 
Bless you. Terrible that they had to write this, man. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah, exactly. I I agree with everything you're you're saying. Uh, you know, it it feels almost like because this has been aired, you know, it's been said like you know, once again for another year, the city of Montreal is not giving us the money that we need. Uh, they're like, before it gets worse, like let us jump ahead and like say we're gonna reach out. But also like reaching out doesn't mean really mean anything. No, like I can't say I'm gonna reach out, but am I actually doing the actions yeah, yeah, to yeah. like you know uh. Uh, you know, kind of uh, ameliorate our relationship. And again, as they said, like in the spirit of like uh, Montreal saying that they're so, you know, inclined on like uh, reconciliation. If you can't even do that, do the one of the most, like obviously I don't, I, I'm not, I don't work in the government, but you know, if you can't even like start with this, like how are you, how are you gonna, you know, start really go for that reconciliation, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as you said, they should work uh, proactively with indigenous communities and, um, you know, leaders to and organizations to be able to, you know, reach a better, like a more stable, um, yeah. Position, yeah. I think there's something about this letter I think is kind of interesting It stuck out to me. was this last part. We were asking for a fraction of that commitment in the spirit of reconciliation. This would fulfill the city of Montreal's reconciliation strategy. It's like, I mean, first of all, they shouldn't be doing it because it's like human beings, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Because they're human beings who are like, going to be out in the cold. It shouldn't be just a strategy that makes you do it. You but should do it. And it's, it's because... it, it, I think it's it's telling It's telling that the resilience feels like, not of resilience, but like they feel that what can get Montreal, the city of Montreal's attention, mm -hmm. is that like, hey, by the way, like, yeah, like people are people are like yeah, dying, people exactly. are really in trouble out here, and also this would like check some boxes for you. Yeah, guys, exactly. You know? And to me, that's like, oh, it's so it's so terrible that they had to like, go to that length right being like hey by the way like people are dying but also we know you guys want to do reconciliation yeah, in this exactly. recount, you know? like you said you would try so here's your way you can try is yeah, the way yeah. you can you can actually do yeah, it yeah, yeah. so yeah it's uh it's very um yeah it's very disconcerting to see so absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah um yeah i had more to say but i think uh all right, well, we'll keep it for another episode then. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much, Ode, for coming on to Hello Goodbye Lines. Uh, this will be our second last episode. It's uh, the holiday seasons, as we're saying. Uh, next week will be our last episode. Tune in then for uh, a great discussion, as, as always, of course. And uh, until then, uh, take care. Take care of each other. And uh, 